State of Minnesota, County of Hennepin, District Court, 4th Judicial District, State of Minnesota Plaintiff versus Derek Michael Chauvin, Defendant. Verdict, Count 1, Court File Number 27, CR 20-12646. We, the jury, in the above entitled matter as to Count 1, unintentional second-degree murder while committing a felony, find the defendant guilty. This verdict agreed to this 20th day of April, 2021, at 1.44 p.m. Signed, Juror Four-Person, Juror Number 19. Same caption, verdict count two. We, the jury, in the above entitled matter as to count two, third-degree murder, perpetrating an eminently dangerous act, find the defendant guilty. This verdict agreed to this 20th day of April, 2021, at 1.45 p.m. Signed by Jury Four-Person, Juror Number 19. Same caption, verdict count three. We, the jury, in the above entitled matter as to count three, second-degree manslaughter, culpable negligence, creating an unreasonable risk, find the defendant guilty. This verdict agreed to this 20th day of April, 2021, at 1.45 p.m. Welcome to the Bad and Bitchy Podcast. I'm Erin. And I'm Erica. And today we are doing a deep dive into the trial of Derek Chauvin, um, including what a piece of shit he is. Just a quick note to say that uh, please share, tell your friends about the podcast, uh, rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Um, retweet us uh, because this is the biggest way that we can um, make sure that people are listening and uh, we would really appreciate that. All right. So last week, the jury for the trial of Derek Chauvin rendered its verdict guilty. Chauvin was found guilty on three counts, second degree, unintentional murder, third degree murder and second degree manslaughter for the death of George Floyd in May of 2020. So just to clarify, um, you know, because I wasn't familiar with many of these charges and Erica, I'm sure you weren't either. Um, these charges are specific to Minnesota. So I know that in Canada, we get a lot of, we watch a lot of crime procedurals and we, you know, get these uninformed ideas of what um, sentencing should be in Canada, but, you know, isn't necessarily the case. So again, this is just Minnesota law, state law. Um, so second degree unintentional murder, what is that? That is when someone causes the death of a human without intent to affect the death of a person. Um, and so that can make, uh, the sentence for that is prison for not more than 40 years. Third degree murder is um, whoever without intent to affect the death of a person causes the death of another by perpetrating an act imminently dangerous to others and evincing a depraved mind without regard for human life. So basically criminal negligence, kind of. Um, and that um, can result in a sentence of in prison for not more than 25 years. And then second degree manslaughter is killing by negligence, which can receive up to 10 years in prison or weirdly, a fine up to $20,000, which 
you know, I like to think that we don't have a price on life, but I guess in Minnesota there is. Um, anyway, Chauvin following the, this uh, verdict and sentencing, or sorry, this verdict was taken to the Oak Park Heights Maximum Security State Prison where he was put in a segregated unit for his own safety because I guess, you know, he is liable to be killed by others or maybe assaulted. Um, his sentencing hearing will take place on June 16th, 2021, and several factors will, will influence the judge's decision on the length of his sentence, such as the fact that he had no prior criminal record and that there are state guidelines for such a person who, again, has no record. And as such, the state sentencing guidelines for an individual with no previous record found guilty of the same crimes as Chauvin include, one, the the presumptive sentence for both second degree and third degree murder is 12 and a half years. The judge is then given the discretion to hand down a sentence between 10 years and eight months, up to 15 years for each of those crimes. And then second degree manslaughter carries a presumptive sentence of four years for someone with no record, according to the state guidelines. But again, the judge's discretion ranges from anywhere from three years and five months up to four years and eight months. However, um, you know, there are mitigating and aggravating um, factors for every case. And so prosecutors are asking for a harsher sentence than what the recommendations give due to several aggravating factors, um, which could then result in a higher sentence uh, or a sentence at the higher end of the state guidelines. And so a couple of those aggravating factors include one, uh, George Floyd was particularly vulnerable. Two, he was treated with particular cruelty. I mean, of course. And three, uh, that children were present when the crimes were committed. And the sentence will be likely to be served concurrently rather than consecutively. And then there, the three other officers who were on the scene of the, the day that George Floyd was murdered will be facing trial this August for aiding and abetting secondary murder and aiding and abetting second degree manslaughter i find second degree unintentional man's like i find that interesting mm. um especially 10 years in prison or twenty thousand dollar fine um if you're poor that's not a choice yeah. i that's just my initial reaction is is to that um second of all are these just specific to minnesota yeah okay um third i didn't expect him to be convicted on all charges i thought that maybe he maybe we'd make we probably make it as far as third degree murder Mm. without intent to affect the death affect the death of any person Mm -hmm. um but the second degree murder charge that they convicted him on was what was surprising to me. Mm-hmm. That was where the rubber hit the road. Mm-hmm. What I find interesting is that, you know, in the clip where the judge reads out the verdict, he reads second degree unintentional murder first, which is the highest charge. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, once you, you got that verdict, you knew the rest of them would follow. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, 
you know, this man thought he was going to walk out of court a free man. Mm -hmm. But why shouldn't he think that? Right. Like that is the status quo. That's how these things come about. I think it was um, that this Walter Scott was a black man who was shot in the back in 2015 Mm -hmm. um, in uh, North Charleston. And this was one of those cases where you can't say that you were fearing for your life if you're shooting a man in the back. Mm-hmm. So I believe that the he was acquitted. The cop who shot and killed Walter Scott was acquitted. Um, and... Uh, as these things go and um, the feds came in and tried him and convicted him. Mm-hmm. And so he appealed and his appeal was denied. Like it, 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 the verdict was upheld basically. Mm-hmm. So that's the way these things usually go. So, well, it is South Carolina too. Anyway, all this to say that um, I, I was just surprised that he got convicted of second degree murder. Mm-hmm. Um, and that even when it's obvious that this cop was literally just committing an execution, because you can't, like I said, at Walter Scott, you can't shoot somebody in the back mm-hmm. and then claim that they were, th- you were an immediate fear for your life. Yet a South Carolina jury acquitted him of that and the feds had to come in and that's what's usually been the pattern of civil rights cases is like you can't trust the states to do anything right especially southern states mm-hmm. like south carolina georgia da, 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 they're used to those kangaroo courts that um convict black people of just being black somewhere and they are especially um, the ones who are going to let white cops go, but it happens all over the states. So I don't want to. I don't want to actually. I'm just talking like the history of the South has mm-hmm. been that. You know, I to this day am still sort of in shock mm-hmm. that he was convicted, mm-hmm. and it just goes to show how much the times around us have come to a certain critical point mm-hmm. where not convicting him would have caused something worse than the LA riots, which yeah. spread not only across the US, but to Toronto and the up the social upheaval and that would have happened would have been absolutely incredible and it wouldn't have been non-violent and i can't blame people verdicts of high profile cases are always political mm-hmm. there's always politics that are or else they wouldn't be high profile cases if they didn't represent something greater right i am watching i was telling you i was watching dirty john mm-hmm. and the second season is about um betty broderick And the whole thing with Betty Broderick after she, you know, murdered her ex-husband and his new wife is that it was a hung jury the first time. Mm -hmm. 
And that's because the conversation had moved towards a sort of, you know, feminist conversation about women who had supported their husbands when they were in medical school or law school or whatever, and then been, you know, kicked to the curb, basically, when these men had felt they reached a certain position and needed to trade in the possession of a wife for a younger model, like trading in a car. Mm -hmm. So my point is, is that these high profile cases, especially the ones that spur um, this intense level of discussion are, or, and on which movements are perfectly situated to um, administer in a way mm-hmm. um, that conversation or the activism underlying what the conversation should be the parameters basically right. um, those cases are going to be political in nature and so I mean the jury did the right thing sure but I don't see this as a particular inflection point like some people are hoping for until I see something actually change because the backlash is has been for police to kill even more black people Mm -hmm. yeah yeah and we'll get into you know the the trial and like what people are saying that quote-unquote means but um, you know, I think that the you're right in that the second degree murder charge guilty verdict actually surprised me too. Um, especially because, and I think that it, if you see that video, you know, when the verdict's being read out of Derek Chauvin and his eyes just starting back and forth, and there's kind of this like look of disbelief in them, and I think that he was also surprised. And I think that he was surprised and that is very, I think very indicative of the way his lawyers handled the case, because if he knew that he was guilty, then that there was like a very high probability of him being convicted, he might've gone for a plea deal, but he thought that he would probably get off or get like a very maybe only be charged with manslaughter at the, at the, at a minimum, right? Like at the baseline, which would be like, like, like you said, you know, up to a $20,000 fine or like 10 years in, in prison. Um, but now he's, he's got second degree murder. Yeah. And the fine probably would have been paid for by his, by some police union. So, so Minnesotans tax dollars, right? Like, fuck. I don't think people realize how much they subsidize police killings oh yeah um the point is is that that bill is going to be paid for by the city which Mm -hmm. is your property tax dollars Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. and so what happens is these cops go all ape shit and they start mowing down people and you know who's gonna who do you think's paying the the george floyd's family their $10 million or whatever amount it was. I can't remember what amount it was. Um, It's going to be the taxpayer. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's where city councillors have really dropped the ball. 
um, and really absconded from their responsibility. Because I find it interesting that we talk all this about fiscal responsibility, but the biggest fiscal drain. Yep. Speak on on it. On municipal budgets is the motherfucking police. And that's why the defund movement is so key, but it's not being, it's being led by activists. And that's why like, um, like all of these quote unquote allies, white allies who are very wealthy and quote unquote middle class, um, they don't understand, they don't care about municipal politics because they don't feel that it affects them. But if they knew that their tax dollars, you know, half of the city's budget or more were going towards policing that then murder people in the streets, they would probably be upset. But again, they don't care. And remember, this payout is not the same money that is running the operations and paying for police pensions. Mm -hmm. Because every time you let off one of these cops, you're doubly paying for them. You're paying for the wrongful death and you're paying to support this cop's career because the cop gets back on the force and then you have to pay for their salary, their benefits, and their pension. Well, and that's why, like, all of these fucking assholes at the Ottawa police who are fucking suspended with pay who for harassment, for sexual assault, fucking pisses me off because my tax dollars are paying for them to just sit at home and do fucking nothing. Meanwhile, there, like, are serious allegations against them. Exactly, which is why Diane Deans has been such an abject failure, Yes, you know, on the Ottawa Police Board. And just, you know, if we use Ottawa sort of like this microcosm of what's going on in other cities, because there's nothing really particular about, you know, Ottawa, is that the Ottawa um, Police Board... I have absconded from their responsibility to hold police responsible. Mm-hmm. Right. And they will, you know, there's some things that are provincial. Don't get me wrong. But there's, I believe that there's more that they could do. So first of all, they didn't have to increase the police budget yes. by 11 point something million, 11.3 million dollars for the next year. They didn't have to do that. They could have frozen the budget. Even freezing the damn budget is literally de facto defunding them. Yes. Yes. So if you can't even do that bare minimum, why should anybody trust? Oh, we want to make sure that the like I've I've been to those meetings. I've heard them whine about how they want to do the right thing and they want to do this. Then stop talking and do it. You know what I mean? Like change takes courage. It takes people to go against the status quo and go against the grain. If Mm -hmm. you can't do it, then get the fuck out. Mm -hmm. That's my thing. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah. And didn't uh, the Ottawa police board say that it's not their responsibility to hold the police accountable? Yes. Then what the fuck are they for? Why do they even have a board? Like honest question. If they're not supposed to hold the police accountable, then what the, why the fuck do we have one? I don't know. I seriously don't know the answer to this question. But I'm guessing that 
this is the status quo with a lot of Canadian cities, especially Toronto that has a how much billion dollar um, budget. Mm-hmm. I saw LA has like LA LAPD has like a three billion dollar budget. Yeah, <laughs> it's like Canada's GDP. <laughs> I don't. They are a drain on our resources, and we give because because the state has cut so many social services and money to the operations of those surf- social services and hasn't provided them much in terms of operations because it's a small government bullshit. The police, a lot more falls on the police. Mm-hmm. And the police are like, well, we need more money to do all this stuff. Well, right. And then they get more money because it's rubber stamping. The Ottawa Police Board basically rubber stamps whatever chief slowly wants. And I'm sure a lot of municipal um, and municipal meaning the non-RCMP police forces are the same way. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you have a powerful police union um, that I don't know why you know, they don't take the police union. Why don't they stand up to the police union? Yeah. I'm not saying that the police union are, are not going to, like, they're not going to take it lying down, obviously, but this is a fight worth having. There's just, again, it's the same conversation we have, seems like every week, there's just a fucking lack of courage. Everyone's just happy to roll over because everything just seems too hard and they just don't want to do it. Well, then don't go, like, I can't. Then don't fucking hold public office then. Like, yeah. make way for people who actually want, want to, to do change. something. Although the police have a tendency to target people too, as we've learned in Lethbridge from um, that situation. In Lethbridge, mm-hmm. NDP, MLA, Shano- Shannon Phillips has been, um, who is racialized, by the way, um, has been hounded by the police for they have admitted to unauthorized surveillance of her when she was Alberta's environment minister. So think of oil, think of 2017, think of what political wins were happening there. Yeah. So they, two officers watched and photographed her during a meeting in a diner as well as following and running the license plate of one of the people she met with. This was all unauthorized. So um, the police can play dirty and they can play, if they can play dirty with an MLA Mm -hmm. who was in cabinet, this is not even a backbencher, then they will play dirty with anybody. And oh, yeah. they have the resources to do that. Yeah. And I, I really do think the resources of the police, all of this like military armor, we have to look at that connection between the military industrial complex, the military, and then police. Number one, a lot of police officers have a military background. Mm-hmm. And they're particularly in Ottawa, too. Ah, and therefore the de escalation. The idea of de-escalation doesn't really exist in the military, does it? I mean, I would, this is, okay, that part is an assumption on my part. So I'm assuming that de-escalation is not their first go-to. How's that? Mm -hmm. I think that's fair, right? In the military. So you come in 
and you already have this background of shoot first, ask questions later. And therefore, not only that, how much post-Patriot Act or post-Iraq War or post-Afghanistan, because although Canada didn't go into Iraq, it went into Afghanistan, how much of that, that equipment by military manufacturers then filters down to policing? And if that's the case, then the, pep, the, the pepper spray, the rubber bullets, the this, the that, the other, the deploying of that tactical um, use of force is more often the first response in police than the last response. Mm-hmm. And so I think that when it comes to policing, modern policing, it's gotten increasingly aggressive. It's inherently misogynistic because of that aggression and dominance. And it is funded by the taxpayer on various levels. And it's amazing to me how much the taxpayer has funded all of this. Mm -hmm. Right. And so I think if you're going to make so if were I to make, say, a conservative argument in terms of defunding the police. Small C or big C? Small C. Okay. This, the police are too powerful. And if you have a civilian quote unquote oversight body that can't do anything, that means they're too powerful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Let's uh, quickly chat about um, how much of a garbage person Derek Chauvin was, is as a civilian. Um, public records show that Chauvin lived in the St. Paul suburb of Oakdale, which is, oh, weird, 77% white. Huh. He was among the 92% of Minneapolis police officers who live outside of the city limits. Um, Police reform advocates have long said that cops who don't live in the communities they serve might not be able to fully understand or connect with residents in the area. I mean, absolutely. And, you know, Chauvin's record as a police officer in Minneapolis was littered with allegations of misconduct and excessive force. There were 18 complaints filed against him over his 19 year career with 16 of those complaints closed without discipline. Um, him and his wife or now ex-wife um, are you know, either getting a divorce in the middle of divorce or have divorced um, because uh, they are undergoing a federal investigation for felony tax fraud. And uh, that trial is gonna be happening sometime in June. Yeah, it was something, it was like over $400,000 worth of what? tax fraud. Yeah. Wait, where's he getting this money? It's a great question. Where? What's the revenue base for this? I mean, does nightclub security pay that much? He thinks <laughs> not. Um, it would be interesting, you know, if the sequencing of events had gone differently, right? Like, if he had had the tax fraud case before... The, the murder case, um, you know, he would have then had a prior criminal record. So I wonder if that would have changed the outcome if he would have then, you know, pled, pled guilty on some of the charges. 
Oh, that's a good question. That sequencing matters. Mm-hmm. I mean, I it's two different, two different jurisdictions, right? So, like, it's it's hard to say. I mean, a felony is a felony is a felony. Oh, so Singh on social media called on police agencies across the country to create anti-hate crime units. Oh, and people were like... My guy, what are you doing? No, thank you. So more policing? Because guess what? Then they're going to ask for money. Yeah, I know. Are you stupid? You, know you know who we never tell... Um, do more with less to police. Police? police. <laughs> we tell it to everyone else but police. Why would I trust the police to govern their own racism and sexism and homophobia and Islamophobia, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? Why would I do that? Why would you do that? And why would you give them money to do that? And that's the same thing. Like The whole thing's absurd. It's absurd. I ju- I'm just like, and if Jagmeet Singh doesn't know this by now, I have questions. So for the trial, Erica, um, the prosecutors called 38 witnesses over the course of three separate phases of the trial. Uh, in the first part, they had bystanders at the scene testify about their fear and horror as they watched Floyd slowly die under Chauvin's restraint. The second phase had a series of police supervisors and use of force experts, including the Minneapolis police chief, criticize Chauvin's continued kneeling as excessive and unreasonable, particularly once uh, Floyd had passed out, stopped breathing, and had no pulse. And the third and final uh, phase was uh, they brought in five separate medical experts that explained that Floyd died from a lack of oxygen when Chauvin restricted his ability to breathe in what's known as positional asphyxia. So when the verdict was read, there was a symphony of celebration uh, outside the government center in Minneapolis where the trial was held, and as well as four miles to the south at the intersection where Floyd drew his last breaths. And among a crowds of hundreds of people, people cheered, shouted out in joy, and raised hands skyward as cars honked and some people cried in relief. Um, other people strained to hear from their cell phones while the, rest, while the rest of what the judge had to say as he adjourned the trial. Uh, the Floyd family released a statement that described the verdict as painfully earned justice. And then it added, quote, this case is a turning point in American history for accountability of law enforcement and sends a clear message we hope is heard clearly in every city and every state, end quote. And I think we've, you know, kind of touched on a little bit of this as, you know, yes, it's, it's progress, but it, it doesn't necessarily signal a turning point per se, because we don't know what the reverberations from the verdict will really be. I think particularly white people view this as justice. And I think that that's somewhat misguided. I mean, white people always want the, they always want an off ramp, right? Because, you know, it's too hard for them. Everything is too hard for them. They want their off ramp. They don't want to be bothered anymore. And so they're going to be like, woo, okay, we're done. Yeah, it's not a silver bullet. It's not their reality, Mm -hmm. right? 
And so, which is why I don't listen to white people on black issues. Just like I don't listen to men on feminism. Why would I do that? Right. You know, um, white people want the least, the most convenient way of looking like they are all Black Lives Matter. The the most convenient. Everything mm. is based on white convenience with them. Mm-hmm. So, of course, they're going to say, well, we did it. Yeah, they're, they're very much like, oh, my work here is done. Yeah. What's the next issue I can hook, hook my wagon onto? Exactly. Exactly. They're like, oh, look at the Asians. They need us. Ah. Oh. You know? <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> and so and so you know i'm not surprised i okay i know from up here from you know some of the groups that i'm in um a couple of groups that i made that people are like there was relief more than anything right because i don't think a lot of us realize how much we were holding on to at least that's the way i felt mm-hmm. i didn't realize how much of this anxiety and just this 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 pent up frustration that i was hanging on to until that verdict was read and i could finally release it um that is what and within the context of this pandemic too the the idea was yes there's relief and yes we're happy but le- about the verdict but let's not pretend that this is justice let's not pretend and i wrote this globe i wrote a globe article that i'll add to the show notes mm-hmm. um that was basically about um not treating this as though it's some um, like I said, inflection point mm-hmm. or, or reversal of fortune. I shouldn't say inflection. I'm thinking that it's reversal of fortune is the whole thing. Um, I'm thinking of an upside down parabola. Don't ask me why. Okay. Cause I'm thinking about the graph and I'm like, that doesn't make sense. Um, all this. So basically that, um, that reversal has not yet borne out yet. Um, and until we see what is borne out and how justice is rendered for the others, then we have no right to say that justice was served mm. in a really meaningful way. So that's, I, I, I think there's a lot of ambiguity there is basically what I'm saying. And that's okay. Mm-hmm. It's okay to have it be bittersweet. It's it, it's more of a reprieve more than a pattern right now. Right now. Yeah, and I, I think that, you know, a lot of white people, particularly white women, are, you know, they care. And that's great. But, like, I think they forget or don't know that these movements and this, this progress it takes so much time. It's over a length of a period of time, right? Like, and I worry that, you know, people who voted in the 2020 election and were, were rewarded with a Biden, a democratic victory, 
that when the midterms come around, they're going to think, oh, well, my work here is done, or they're going to vote and the results may not go the way that they want. And they're going to be become disenchanted by that. Whereas like the fight needs to be sustained progress. And yes, you know, the verdict here is a step in the right direction, but it's not the next time, you know, Dante Wright, it's not, it's not might not be the same, the same thing. Every yeah. case is, is different. There are different facts and that's the reality of it. And like, we can't think that the problem solved. It's just progress is not linear. Right. Right. You know, there's going to be setbacks and we need to, and that's the same as within life. We just have to keep pushing so that progress advances more at a quicker pace than it does like regress. Like, let's be real about what the reaction of law enforcement has been, has been to gun down more black people. Mm -hmm. I think, yeah, it was like the three weeks of the trial. It was like the black people were, a black person was murdered every day. Yeah. A 16-year-old girl in Columbus, mm-hmm. Ohio, um, and uh, a man in Escondido, California, a 42-year-old man in eastern North Carolina, an unidentified man in San Antonio, another man killed in the same city within hours of the first, a 31-year-old man in central Massachusetts um and I feel like there was another one I can't you know um the circumstances differ but the results are the same yep yep and you know this is what's gonna happen police police are gonna show us how above the law they are with these killings um and were i white i would be concerned that you know eventually i would be concerned that with these new covid powers that they have Mm -hmm. that eventually it'll come to them too Mm -hmm. we saw that kid in the park on twitter Mm -hmm. who was being harassed by the police like he were a black boy And I'm like, well, what did you expect? Mm-hmm. You know, eventually it's going to come to your kids when yeah. the circumstances are right. Yeah. Yeah. Then they'll care. Then they'll care. But, you know, I mean, the the point is we're at a point now. Where we're all into awareness and we're all aware. So what are you going to do about it? What are we going to do about it? And... um it's it's funny because I was I was at my friend's house yesterday and she was talking about um, Georgia and what Georgia needs and we were talking about organizing mm-hmm. and how things like the ability to to anticipate the need mm-hmm. of people who aren't like you. Is not what white people do. Hundred percent. Hundred percent. So there is that. So you know, I've never seen that more. Like that is absolutely what I see all the time now during COVID, where 
people who have kids at home and are working um, just think that their situation is the worst mm-hmm. and that no other person who is working at home with children could have it worse, even though the first person is has a live-in partner uh, or and then the second person is a single parent like they just think people always think that they're the victim and that they have it the worst off and they just cannot imagine other people outside of their own situation yeah it's an extremely selfish position that they usually take mm-hmm. um and you know sometimes when you see them in the activist space it's completely self-serving and um you know i i i am i just read off what six police encounters since the verdict mm-hmm. at least six people were fatally shot by officers across the united states in the 24 hours after jurors reached a verdict six mm-hmm. um black people if that's not like i don't know how that's not racism also um what i find is and that's after dante wright and um there were a couple of others that i i can't keep them all straight so there were at least three during the trial Mm -hmm. and so you know how can we say how can we be how can we as black people experience joy when the pain is right around the corner and you're just bracing yourself for it? Yeah, absolutely. Which is why black joy is a revolutionary concept. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then once the verdict was read out, fucking conservative right wing Twitter just lost its goddamn shit. Like it was truly incredible to see so many people like progressives retweeting quote tweeting these tweets into my timeline just because they're like these fucking crazy people someone said oh well all police should now go on strike and i was like what for like, what because because it's the tech of the police like i'm sorry but like an object like this is a, a, a jury of objective people who knew the least amount of the about the case possible and they were like yeah it's very obvious that uh you know excessive force was being used and uh he could have stopped at any time and chose not to well didn't 46 percent of republicans think that the verdict was wrong yeah some which i thought was remarkably low for them (laughs) everybody else was like oh my gosh only half i'm like only half I thought it would be at least two thirds. Mm-hmm. You know, again, like, I don't know what people are expecting. These people mm-hmm. have told you who they are over and over and over again, yeah. and you're expecting them still to be like you. Is Why? The definition of insanity. Thank you. Stop expecting and stop wasting your time on these people. Mm-hmm. Like, this idea that we have to bring every and everybody any and everybody with us is a very white concept that I don't even agree with mm-hmm. because I've had these conversations with people about how well don't you want to bring as many people no I don't want volume I want a critical mass so in other words I don't want the majority 
necessarily, I don't need the majority. We don't need them. We need a critical mass. Mm-hmm. And we need to build um, uh, um, movements of reciprocity mm. amongst Asians, amongst um, indigenous people, amongst labor, amongst all of these other movements, Islamophobia, migrants, etc. to really build a new vision. And what I see are there's people like, you have to bring everybody along. No, what I have to do is talk to other people who feel the same way so we can galvanize. That's mm-hmm. what we need to do. That's where the effort should be. Not in convincing a bunch of white people who really should, after seeing that video, if you still think like, I'm going to quote somebody very soon. I remember this guy, Anthony, Anthony Housefeather, MP for Mount Royal, um, who was on the Justice Committee during the Jody Wilson-Raybould thing, the SNC-Lavalin Jody Wilson-Raybould thing. Mm-hmm. Listen to this, listen to this, you know, fountain of, 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 in, of depth okay. and of thought. Um, from the evidence, he tweets, from the evidence I saw presented, Derek Chauvin deserved conviction. Gee, thank you, Anthony, for your, you know, for, for your blessing of a verdict that has absolutely nothing to do with you. So that's first. I recognize systemic racism exists in policing. Yay! Ample evidence of unfair and disparate treatment of Black and Indigenous people exists. But let's not forget, most police officers are good people and deserve respect. Do you have a... Do you have evidence of that? Because let me just say, when you have eight retweets, 177 quote tweets, and 65 likes, that's a hell of a ratio. Yikes. And he didn't even have the decency to capitalize Black and Indigenous. Woof. Woof. Yeah, it's not not great. It's not uh, great. Um, Well, Erica, speaking of systemic racism, uh, the U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland announced the U.S. Department of Justice will undertake a sweeping investigation into whether the Minneapolis Police Department engages in a pattern or practice of illegal conduct, including whether officers use excessive force during protests. And so these sorts of um, pattern or practice investigations are, like I said, uh, typically done by the uh, Department of Justice, but uh, they were basically abandoned under the Trump administration until they happened under Obama, under Bush, but Trump just was like, no. But they've actually had proven success um, in reducing violence, um, particularly Um, Yeah, particularly against like racialized communities um, in the US. And so now Merrick Garland is reinstating them. Um, So basically, um, it will run parallel to the Justice Department's civil rights investigation into Chauvin. um, And sources familiar with those proceedings say federal prosecutors are investigating Chauvin's use of force on Floyd 
and a 2017 arrest during which Chauvin pinned a 14-year-old with his knee. Sorry, sir, that's a child. Um, yes. And, and those, both of those two investigations are separate from the Minnesota Department of Human Rights probe, which was announced shortly after Floyd's death, which will look at the policies, procedures, and practices over the past 10 years, and whether the department engaged in systemic discrimination. Um, yeah, so basically all of those investigations will focus on um, whether the Minneapolis police engaged in a pattern of unlawful excessive force, discriminatory policing, use of force against activists protected by the First Amendment, and use of force that flouts laws protecting people with mental illnesses and disabilities. And um, the human rights probe will also assess the police department's systems of accountability and whether new mechanisms should be implemented to protect the constitutional rights of people in Minneapolis. Would be great if uh, Canada did some stuff like that. Not with Anthony Housefeather. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but. it seems like these these sorts of investigations have some teeth to them. I mean, they're not going to end qualified immunity by any means, but you know, they can have an influence on how things are done. Yeah, and um, like I said, you know, without the Justice Department. Walter Scott's killer would have gone free. Mm -hmm. And so, but the Justice Department has always done this when it comes to civil rights. As I said, like, you know, I'm thinking about, you know, um, uh, the Freedom Riders and those Freedom Riders. We, we talked about Freedom Riders last year. Mm -hmm. And those Freedom Riders that were going from, I think there were two Jewish and one Black boy, man, young man. Um, who were brutally murdered in like Mississippi during the civil rights era um, and a jury, like, I don't even know if they brought charges mm -hmm. and the justice department had to step in. So this is, this is a pattern. Yeah. It, it's pretty much how it goes when the States, when it comes to civil rights, because of the civil rights act, when the States don't, you know, do the right thing, the, the Justice Department will come in and open an investigation. I don't know what their conviction rate is. I don't know what their sentencing is like. I don't know um, what federal convictions look like versus state. And those are all interesting questions, but I don't know the answers. But I feel like, um, yeah, it's a big signal. Mm -hmm. um, and signals in politics are very, very important. Yeah. And they're and in a place like the United States, that seems to be aiming to clean up some stuff. It's a big signal to Western democracies to the rest of them. Mm -hmm. You know, um, because the US and Canada are not the only ones having these discussions or facing these issues. Or and you know, the inequities of COVID are not just Canadian and U.S. based. Australia, um, Britain, all over Western democracies are really coming. Some haven't, but some are forced to come to terms with the fact that they're pretty racist uh -huh. and their policies are racist and their structures are racist and so on. Yeah. So I just think it's important because it not only sends a signal to the states, sends a signal internationally 
especially after four years yeah. of that white supremacist motherfucker. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that the the Justice Department um, go, taking up the mantle of practicer, um, whatever, the, I forget the other word. Why can't I think of it? Um, pra practice or pattern investigations um, just demonstrates to people that elections matter, right? Like That's another good point. Right? Like, you know, the Trump, the electing Trump, obviously there were wide reaching consequences, the likes of which will be felt for a generation, I'm sure, um, particularly around COVID. And like, sure, Joe Biden is like trying to fix some of that, but like the damage had already been done. So you can only fix so much. But, you know, this bringing back the pattern and practice investigations definitely, like you said, is a signal to Western democracies, but it's also a signal to voters that, mm. yes, I am going to, I understand why you put me in office and I understand yeah. what you want. And like, these are the tools at my disposal and I'm going to do what I can. These are the yes. values that we hold. So I have a question for you. What did you think about um, the judge talking about Maxine Waters? The defense brought it up. That it brought was like, it up and drafted a motion for like a mistrial or something like that. So, which, which is like dumb because my understanding of like this jury being sequestered is that they wouldn't have access to television and news. Right. Isn't and I'm guessing the they take away your cell phones too. Yeah, like, That's isn't that the guessing. whole point of sequestration? Like, I don't... So it's a non sequitur, basically. I think so. I could be wrong, but, like, that's my understanding. Well, yeah, or else they wouldn't be sequestered. Yeah. So what difference does it make? Yeah. I'm just saying. Yeah. Maxine Waters was like, I'm not new to this, so mm -hmm. what the... And, you know, I, I also want to say, speaking of signals let's talk about how um george floyd or what derek chauvin did to how he murdered george floyd was also a signal um in a trump america then mm -hmm. um and how i saw on the route mm -hmm. that a white texas teacher was suspended after oh my god yes Sending a photo of her foot on a black boy's neck to the boy's mother. The caucasity. Exactly. I I saw that come up in my timeline and I was like, there's no way. Like, mm -hmm. not only is that racist, the absolute lack of judgment that that shows to send that to the child's mother. And the so the intimidation and the violence. Is just very white supremacist. So, mm -hmm. yeah, and I think she got the teacher got fired, right? Yeah, yeah. Good yeah. consequences. Yeah, I mean, the teacher in my mind should have been arrested. Uh, people are arrested for less, but you know, pity yeah. pa. You take your wins where you can, and then you push for more. So, Erica, now that you know, we we see that elections have consequences, and that. Biden's doing what he can and 
within as within the powers of his cabinet and you know con congressional powers and laws that they pass is different than what by the white house can do um through like policy existing policies um executive orders and such but i think there's a there i think there are lessons for canada in this and that we should be able to take something away from the verdict from the investigations that are happening and apply them to Canada. But I'm kind of struggling with what, because police officers in Canada don't have qualified immunity. The police unions are strong, but we don't have qualified immunity in the same way. So, but we do have these police boards, but they have no teeth. So how do we restructure the, these organizations or how do we, how can we hold police officers and um, police forces to account? Or, um, or, or maybe, maybe the more simple question is like, what takeaways are there that we can maybe apply to Canada? Elections matter, like you said. You know, when you want to reach down and elect Doug Ford, okay, <laughs> part of these, part of the problem is that you know, there's some things that are provincial and that mm -hmm. the municipalities don't have control over. Mm -hmm. And so we, why are you electing people like Doug Ford? Yeah. Is, is, is the thing. If you want actual stuff done, then obviously <laughs> it's not about, it's not him. <laughs> yeah. I don't uh know. I, I, you know, we, I, so um, the Justice for Abdirahman Abdi Coalition um, did a lot of work on this. <laughs> and they couldn't get, they were about, they could get it passed with Kathleen Wynne, but then an election happened. And then Doug Ford came to office and just scrapped the whole thing. And yeah. there, there were some important reforms in that. Mm -hmm. um, if we want to change things, we have to really build communities and movements to do so. Yeah. We have to connect with indigenous communities, the ones who are doing work on missing and murdered, for example. Um, I don't know more. All, um, you know, uh, a feminist organizations with police and um, sexual violence. All of these groups have a common enemy. And to galvanize means that people should, when they can, donate their time and donate things like, you know, food for marches, for example. Mm. Donate, like, it's about being su that support. It doesn't always result in bodies in the streets, although that's helpful. Yeah. Because as we know, when there's enough of a backlash, politicians retreat. So why not put, put that pressure on them? Yeah. Because they're already trying to make protesting illegal mm -hmm. for a reason. Yeah. Because it works. Mm -hmm. And power doesn't like to be challenged. And so I think it comes like that support comes in a variety of ways. Childcare for marchers, for example, if they yeah. need it. 
or for people um, actually childcare for people standing in line for coronavirus would be a nice uh-huh. thing too, right? So, you know, I think number one comes with the connecting of, of, of movements or, or with similar goals. So if the police is your thing, then it's the police. Second of all is building that critical mass, um, building a community around that. Um, third is people need to get engaged on these issues in a local way. Mm-hmm. Um, I can guarantee that by now in most Canadian cities, you either have a Black Lives Matter chapter or a defund the police something. Mm-hmm. Number four, talk to your other white people. I don't talk to white people about these things a lot because I find it exhausting. Um, I'm beyond kind of the idea of um, of awareness because awareness doesn't do shit. Mm-hmm. It's a necessary step, but it's not sufficient. Yeah. Um, we can change... Um, the the uh, we can change what is normalized Mm -hmm. the idea is we're trying to get uh, when it comes to awareness going back to awareness you're trying to get people normalized to a certain either to a certain group or a certain way of thinking Mm -hmm. you know black lives matter as a terrorist organization was becoming to get normalized until george floyd And then people were like, oh, shit, like, you know, but that's because the right wing does a very, very effective way, effective. They're very effective at the digital um, marketing of their shitty ideas. Yeah. Or so, I mean, you know, there are many ways to to kind of skin a cat and it just depends on what your I know Aaron you do a lot of like phone bank work and stuff like that mm-hmm. um I think you were doing it in Georgia and Pennsylvania oh Pennsylvania yeah. before before the U.S. election mm-hmm. you don't have to be so I think like some of that is necessary Yeah, and I think that, you know, you really broke it down into the different parts. I think a lot of times people view activism as being on the front lines of a protest or um, going to city council meetings or whatever. But it it really, it can be, um, you know, providing people with food for... Um, a protest or a march or whatever. It can be childcare. It can be helping people find a restroom or anything. And I think that a lot of those, or it can, it can be like facilitating a letter writing campaign or a social media campaign. It's it's so much more diverse than what we actually think it is because the only thing that we see are the people on the, in the protest itself. We don't see all of the the work behind the scenes and you don't need to necessarily go to a meeting. You can work within your sphere of influence. And I think that is also really important because if you feel passionately about someone, you have influence something, you have influence over people that you are friends with. And I think that you can convince them to send a letter 
to their MP, their MPP, their MLA, their city councilor, and say like, this is something I really care about. And, you know, it, it just ha can have a snowball effect. And the more people, you know, write to them or call them or whatever, they're going to get annoyed and they're going to see that people actually care about this. And that's writing an email is just so easy. It's so easy. It takes almost no effort. So like, there's almost no excuse to not do it. People will send you like templates on Twitter. Yeah. Or on, they will have it on the website. I know Black Lives Matter Edmonton had one, yeah. a really good one on their website. Um, the, you don't have to reinvent the wheel. Like Sometimes it's a form and all you do is like put in like what ward you live in or what part of the city you live in and it'll like yeah. populate it yourself. Like your counselor is so-and-so and you like fill in your name and press send. Exactly. That's it. Exactly. Um you, you probably know, spend more time figuring out the sizing chart of a fucking dress you want to buy than sending a fucking email to your local officials. Exactly. Uh, let's see. CPEP mm -hmm. is an example. It's the Criminalization and Punishment Education Project. That's a group that you need to link up with if you're in Ottawa. Um... CAMS, so City, our Coalition Against More Surveillance is another group that you can access. Obviously, there's Black Lives Matter, um, but there are many other groups that are um, focused on reigning in the police, abolition groups, um, defund groups. Like, literally, you can do a Google search in your city. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I think that, you know, there's the Toronto Prisoners' Rights Project. There's all sorts of things. Um, encampment support. So, mm -hmm. whole, um, you know, people without homes are also targeted by police. I'm yeah. pretty sure that yeah. there are groups out there that do that work. Um, all of these, the, the people, in, we are all responsible for the world we want to see. Yeah. And civic engagement, you can't just be passive anymore. You have to be actively civically engaged. And passive includes just fucking reposting shit to your fucking Instagram story. Yes. Black Square is passive. Period. Yeah. You know, it's it's the laziest way to do these things. Yeah. And so that's what I would say. I, I would say start start Googling. We just gave you a, a few um, places. Uh, like, you know, sign up to their mailing lists. Mm -hmm. You know, sign up to their newsletters. Get educated. Uh, listen to voices that aren't friggin', um, I don't know, Rosemary Barton or something, <laughs> who apparently just says shit <laughs> i'm just i i'm just really upset okay as an aside y'all as an aside i was just really upset when rosemary barton was like was talking about the budget and she just basically just put out there that oh well the economy is recovering and i'm like okay first of all cite your source and second of all for whom that's such a blanket statement i i don't know how did you Actually, for you, how did you get involved 
how do you get involved in the things that you're involved with? Because you're involved with quite a lot. In terms of like activism? Yeah. Um, I honestly, a lot of it's through things I see on social media, on Instagram, um, through podcasts I listen to. And a lot of the times I just like cite places to go. And so I just look them up and be like, oh, like, do I, did I, so like when I was doing phone banking for the US election, it was, oh, like go to this website and you can find up times to phone bank. And then it was kind of a pick a time. And it was just like, you were given whatever state and like they prioritize them. Did it suck? And was it really awkward and uncomfortable? Absolutely. Um, I don't like talking to strangers, but I did it. Um, talked to some very nice people, talked to some not nice people, got a lot of hangups. I did a lot of texting, which is a thing that we don't do in Canada just because of the way that we, um, just because of like the privacy stuff. Um, but that was actually interesting too. I did a lot more of that than I did phone banking. Um, but yeah, like I just, it's more like, I feel like I needed to contribute to the outcome that I wanted just because there was a high risk of it not coming to fruition. Cool. All right. Well, I guess we've got a misogynist of the week later this week. So, uh, yeah, if, uh, anyone actually does, you know, email or get involved in activism, let us know, let us know what you're doing. We'd love to hear it. We'll let people know uh, what you're doing, throw you a retweet. Um, But yeah, definitely get involved. Yeah, I think, um, so yeah, let's have a question and answer then, because I would love to know too. So hit us up on Twitter um, or Facebook or Instagram or email us and let us know what, you guys are doing in terms of your activism and don't think that it's too small to make mm-hmm. a difference yep. it's our collective actions yep. that matter yeah and so you know you know i'm reading actually nora's take back the fight book and you know the which is actually a pretty good book we're gonna have her on at some point but basically Um, What she talks about is how neoliberalism has broken down communities Uh and has robbed us of what communities are like and what they feel like Mm. and what they're supposed to be like. So we don't meet each other in communities anymore. Like school is a there's a reason you don't make friends, many friends after school. Well, I do you do but Uh you know a lot of people would say that they don't make a lot of friends after a certain time and it's because we don't have communities but it's because you get a lot of you get a lot of people saying oh it's so hard to make friends as an adult yeah because we don't we We don't have have communities right community we don't you have to find people to connect over something with yes exactly and once that it's the same as any relationship yeah totally totally and so i think that I think that is also a way just to form some really, really good relationships. Mm -hmm. Not to say that activism is a space where that's devoid of shitty people. There are a lot of shitty people. There's a lot of shitty people. But, you know, I can guarantee that when you do find somebody that you connect with in whatever way, that it's actually meaningful. It's not this surface 
this this really surface like tenuous relationship that we transactional relationships that we love to form these days Mm -hmm. and so yeah that's what I would say well, great. So uh, catch massages of the week later this week, and uh, we'll catch you then. Bye. Bye. Bye.